I think we live in a world where our healthy disgust has gone a bit missing and needs to be resurrected because so many people are overwhelmed. And overwhelm is a state where we're not able to say no. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. I'm so glad to be able to welcome Sarah Payton to my podcast today. Sarah Payton, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Stephanie. So I reached out to you because I'm familiar with your book called Your Resonant Self. Um, It's something I have really enjoyed reading as a guided meditation of sorts. I know some of my clients have benefited from it as well. And I'm curious to get to know you and your, your body of work more. I'll just share with the listeners part of what I so appreciate about that book is that it seems like a really gentle and potent way of showing people how to have a healing inner dialogue, uh, sort of a self-befriending, a self-reparenting. And I just love that. So um, can you tell us what is it all that that you do and how did you come to um, creating the work that I'm familiar with as well as uh, the things that I might not know of yet? Well, This world of relational neuroscience, which is essentially the study of how our brains change each other in relationship, is, I think, the very best thing about being alive right now is that there's this whole body of research. And it came about because a lot of universities in the United States during what they called the decade of the brain, which was basically the 1990s, got a bunch of fMRI machines and started thinking, what can we do with cognitive and social neuroscience and relational neuroscience to look at the way we we form and change each other? So that's uh, the what I discovered as I began to explore this world was an extraordinary degree of of self-compassion and of making sense, that I make sense, that other people make sense. And um, and so uh, I got really excited about it, and that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it started with an interest in neuroscience and the practical applications of neuroscience, how understanding mm-hmm. the brain helps us understand and have compassion for ourselves. And you also talk about that interpersonal neurobiology field that's been growing of understanding how uh, we affect each other directly from one nervous system to another. Yeah. And then I started uh, teaching, uh, I was teaching nonviolent communication in the prison, in a women's prison south of Portland, Oregon. Wow. And, and I started talking to them about what I was learning about relational neuroscience, and they loved it. And it brought them self-compassion. And so then I was, I became very focused on, on, 
teaching in the prison and people outside the prison started to invite me and then people started to say, you need to write a book. <laughs> and then that book was what you found, the Your Resonant Self book. That's amazing. You taught nonviolent communication in a women's prison and you were able to make a difference. That that speaks volumes in and of itself because I think most of us, when we think of prisons, we think of some of the people who are really the deepest, the most deeply enmeshed in their trauma and other people's trauma and some of the most stuck people that it's 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 hard to even imagine forming a bridge, reaching out. And yet you you went there and you were able to be helpful to people. I'm curious about what you learned from that experience. Well I think there's something kind of that goes awry with uh, with modern culture and our ideas about prison. Um, for example, I was watching Orange is the New Black, which is a really dr- dramatic full, you know, full show, full of drama, full of tension. But there's no sense in it, or very little, during the seasons that I watched, that the women are looking for something better, looking for, looking for healing looking for spiritual connection that there's a that there's an authentic longing from everyone everywhere this is part of interpersonal neurobiology the idea that brains are always looking to heal and in our stories about prison in our tv shows about prison in our reality shows about prison we tend to gloss over or not notice how much of a longing there is for something better and so my experience in prison, I've been in there now for 15 years or so, um, is that there, is that the folks are, re- they're just really looking for something that makes sense. And I, I started out just teaching on my own. And in the last couple of years, I've been bringing in groups of volunteers to work together with the women because that seems even more effective. Sometimes I have people from other countries. Recently I had a woman from India who was uh, part of a volunteer group. And as we were leaving the prison, she said to me, I never realized that American prisons were basically the drug treatment centers for people without money to be able to afford drug treatment centers. And I said, you are exactly right. That is mental health and drug treatment centers for people who have no other resources. And so, of course, they're looking for healing yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Hearing you say that makes me think of how powerful of an impact it has, the expectations that we bring to someone, what it is that we see in them, because yeah. there's a lot of things that a person could see in a specific prisoner or in the notion of a prisoner. And there's that process, you know, sometimes in psychology we call it projective identification, whereby we take on the projections of others and we we live them out. And I could imagine that someone who's had a life of poverty and crime and ended up in the prison system would be have spent their life dealing with a whole lot of negative projections and owning those and playing those out. And yet you bring this healing when you show up and you recognize something else. You see the part of them that wants to grow and heal and and be resourced and find a way out of suffering. And simply by bringing that lens, by seeing prisoners that way, you are appealing to that part of them that is also there 
which Absolutely. then enables you to to help that part grow. Yeah, totally. It, we do tend to kind of reflect what what we expect, uh, what, what the other person is expecting from us. I love that uh, that wonderful piece of research where they took a group of random kids and they told they were just random kids. They weren't particularly gifted. And they told their teachers, these kids are really gifted. Watch out for them. And the kids then were treated very differently and ended up being star performers over the course of two or three years, which I think is very, very indicative of the incredible power our brains have to affect one another. Mm-hmm. So just by planting that seed in the teacher's minds that this kid has exceptional potential, the teacher gave more focus and attention to bringing out the potential that was there, which helped the kid's self-esteem, believe in themselves, and and live up to that expectation. So that's powerful work. So yeah, we're he- we're hum- we're humanly magical. <laughs> so the so one part of your work has been teaching nonviolent communication in the prison system for the last fifteen years. Yeah, that's been a us. Uh, that's been a small part of my work because I've I was going in once a week for the first ten years or so, and now I go in only just quarterly for for a weekend usually, um, with the volunteers that come to go in with me come from all over the world, as I mentioned. Um, but my my work ha- uh, has continued to be nonviolent communication and relational neuroscience and a third modality that's called family constellations, which is a way of working 3D with people around issues that allows us to take a look at not just this moment in time, but how does their their, the ring of their parents' generation affect them? How does the ring of their um, grandparents' generation, great-grandparents, affect them? I love that. You know, I, I didn't know that you were into Constellation's work until last week I interviewed Jane Peterson. Oh, what fun. My She's my very first Constellation's teacher. Isn't she wonderful? I, I was so, so delighted wonderful. to interview her. And then I, I mentioned you, and she said that she knew you and had worked together. So there will be an episode on uh, family constellations. But but so you you do quite a bit. There's the nonviolent communication, family constellations, uh, interpers- interpersonal neurobiology, relational neuroscience. Do you have a clinical practice? Do you work one-on-one with people? I'm not a licensed therapist. My work is really about being a neuroscience educator. And I do work one-on-one with people talking to them about the neuroscience of healing trauma and taking them through some of the processes that um, that are resonant language processes. And sometimes that happens one-on-one, and sometimes we're working in a group, so we're simultaneously kind of experiencing healing and also learning about the neuroscience of the healing of trauma. Mm. And you've written about how just the act of putting words to an experience helps alleviate distress. So I'd imagine that that education component, you're helping people learn how to name their experiences and understand their own brains, and there's, there's a calmness that can come from that. Yes, such a deep calmness. 
It's quite surprising, really. We, uh, the wonderful uh, neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman, who works and teaches at UCLA, did a, a piece of research that I love, which is he he asked people, "What do you think? Do you think naming your emotions will make you feel better?" And they all said, "No, no way." <laughs> <laughs> then he put them in MRI machines, fMRI machines, and had them name uh, the name their emotions and and see their brains upset, decline. <laughs> so he was able to do both. But most people predicted that naming their emotions wouldn't help them or calm their brains at all. So it's kind of a funny counterintuitive approach to self-regulation and to self-accompaniment is this naming of emotions, which most people are like, no, please don't make me name emotions. I'll just feel worse. I think they feel that they'll just feel worse because nobody has ever accompanied them. So there's, when they name their emotions, they're stepping into aloneness. They're breaking what I call unconscious contracts. Uh, and they're, and they're kind of violating the orders of belonging that are, that are part of our human experience of being in groups. We're not supposed to cry if nobody else is crying. We're only supposed to have the emotions everybody else is having. And so once we start to have our own individual emotions, that needs to be very supported and appreciated, or else we end up feeling like we've broken social rules. Even, I think, with therapists. Oh, even with therapists. Can you say more about that? Well, if people are carrying within them an internal idea about what it's okay to express and what it's okay not to express, what's not okay to express, then they're going to be carrying it with them in every situation, even into their therapy rooms. So if people have a contract with themselves, an unconscious contract with themselves, I, for example, I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will not let anybody see me cry in order not to be ridiculed and humiliated and cast out. No matter the cost to myself, they come in with that contract and and there they are trying to get to the place of experiencing and, and expressing sadness and their body and their nervous system is fighting against their very experiencing and expression. Mm. Are you talking about the experience of the client? Because I think my first impression was that you me- meant that therapists oh, themselves do that. Oh, yes. Well, we know that therapists do it. Um, <laughs> it's all wrapped into attachment. One of the things that I do, I teach uh, the neuroscience education and the, and the, this approach to thinking about trauma and teaching about trauma. And one of the things we do is we talk about how attachment changes our, um, uh, the, the, what, which emotions we're willing to, uh, express and which emotions, emotions we're able to reflect. So if we're avoidantly attached, for example, if we have an, a, an attachment style that's, that's more cognitive and less um, body-based and spends less time naming and reflecting emotions, then what happens is that when our clients name sadness or joy, we, we'll just gloss right over that. I have people do transcripts where they're, <laughs> where they're looking at what emotion does the client express 
And what emotion does the space holder respond to? So if a client expresses sadness, says, I'm so sad, does the therapist or the space holder in any way say, of course you're sad, or I'd be sad, or sadness makes sense, or, you know, anything where the word sadness comes back. And what we see is that over and over again, the same people have the same pattern with each client where the the client will name sadness and the therapist will not reflect sadness. And this is indicative of, of very early patterns. This comes from the research of Beatrice Beebe, who uh, works in New York City and has been doing close video of mothers and babies for 40 years or 50 years now, maybe, watching to see by the age of four months what happens to a baby's range of facial expressions with emotion. And what she finds is that by four months of age, before words are even part of the picture, the babies have limited and edited their facial expression to match their mother's limited facial expression range. So we're, we learn to tailor our emotional expression and our emotional experience in relationship with whoever is holding space for us. So if a mother was holding space for us, we change so that we accompany her and so that we're not doing more than she does. But then we'll take that into the world, and if we're therapists, we'll take it into the world and we won't reflect sadness. We also won't reflect celebration. And we can see this in the transcripts. You, anybody who's listening, who's who's doing therapy, you can take and it, it, you almost have to track it in writing, and you almost have to have somebody else go over it. I've had the people who are the space holders take a look at their own transcript. That's one of the things I ask them to do is to look at their own transcript and track, like with highlight, with using different colored markers, to mark where there's an emotion word. They won't even mark sadness. They won't even mark celebration. They won't notice, even in their review of the transcript, that they're not reflecting those emotions. So coming back to your original piece where you said, I think I, I thought you meant maybe therapists did this. Yes, therapists do this. <laughs> it's something we can't change unless we start to look at it. That's the importance of self-reflection. And, you know, in, in relational psychodynamic therapy, we reflect on the importance of transference and countertransference. So what is the client feeling about me? How do they see me? Who do I remind them of? What are their projections or, or assumptions about me? But also the same in reverse. Who does this client remind me of? What emotions do they activate in me? And sometimes we we have those blockages uh, where we're not able to do our best work because, like you're saying, there's there's maybe something that the client is expressing that we've censored in ourselves or we've disconnected from in ourselves. And so if I'm not going to let myself feel that, how am I going to resonate with them? Right. And if I don't trust my own capacity to be able to hold whatever that emotion is uh, without too much distress – how how can I do how can I offer that? Exactly. Yeah. And and the, the funny thing is, you know, this very, very intense not noticing that we that that self-reflection won't bring us 
to that place, the only thing that will bring us to that place is some sort of externalized capacity to see, either ourselves stepping into a very careful review of transcripts or having somebody else who's not us review the transcripts because they'll see it. They can do the marking of the emotions for us and we'll go, oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at the way my client was expressing disgust and I never, ever, ever named the emotion of disgust. <laughs> mm, disgust is a powerful one. That's that's something yeah. we don't we don't talk about very much, right? But it's yeah. such a powerful I mean, it's a moral emotion. Jonathan Haidt talks about the relationship between disgust and morality. And it's I, I think of disgust as being uh, having something in common with anger in that both of both of those emotions mean no this i don't yes. want to take this in this isn't right for me i need to push it away exactly yes and uh, often you know is displayed with those kinds of words or those kinds of uh, uh, words like aversion or um revulsion or or pushing or um or uh or nausea or overwhelm, all of these things point us toward a sense that disgust is important and present and needs to be honored and named. Do you think that that's a challenging emotion for conscientious people? Because I, I think of people who strive to be good people and emotionally intelligent yeah. as really wanting to be accepting and affirming and validating and open. And the emotion of disgust is not that way. The emotion of no. disgust is, it pushes away, it rejects. Yeah. And I think some people yeah. have a difficult time accepting their own desire to push something away. Yes, I think that's so true. We don't want to push things away. We, we want to be good. We don't want to be disgust. We don't want to have disgust. We don't want to have contempt. We don't want to have anger. Are three that people tend to be like, okay, let's turn the volume down on those. And what's so interesting about anger is that Yak Punksep says that if we try to just turn down anger, we end up turning down everything. All of the life energy has to be turned down in order to turn down anger. That what needs to happen to anger is it needs to be unified and connected with our love, with our care. And once we know what we love that we're getting angry about, what kind of resources are under threat, then we can begin to appreciate the life-serving quality of our anger and transform it into something that's safe and effective instead of something that gives rise to trauma in ourselves or other people. Mm-hmm. Anger can be such an all-consuming emotion to feel. Uh, when I when I think of anger, I think it's like hot and expansive, and it wants to move. There's a lot of energy there, yeah. and that energy is connected to vitality. And yes. I think of anger also as being associated with a sense of being violated, injustice, boundaries. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things that I'm a good person. I don't feel angry or I don't know what I would do with that anger. For a lot of people, I see it turning into sadness too. It's as if anger bad, sadness okay. I'll just turn my anger into sadness. Yeah. We see that all the time. I don't know if anybody who's listening ever does this, but I've noticed myself doing this, that I'll get angry and I'll start to cry. And I'll be like, why am I crying? I'm really angry. I'm not sad. I'm giving a mixed message here. But it was such a powerful, the message I received about anger and being female was such a powerful one. 
it was much more acceptable to be crying than it was to be angry. When you cried, you didn't lose people. When you were angry, you lost people. Do you have the sense that the opposite is often true for men? I do, yes, that men get to be hungry and angry. <laughs> that everything else is kind of off limits. That they, they don't get to, I mean, um, there's been sort of a movement to make disgust more socially acceptable. <laughs> so I think men are getting to do disgust more. Um, uh, it's a way to push, to uh, when it's been mobilized politically, then disgust is used to make whole groups of people wrong and bad and close borders and, yeah. So disgust is of great, great importance and great interest right now when we look at society as a whole. But yeah, it seems like, you know, especially white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, I think, have the, the smallest uh, permissible range of visible emotion. And um, when we look at the statistics for alcohol use, 95% of all white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men use alcohol. So it's like the correlation between alcohol use and the amount of emotion we get to express, I think, mm. probably is a fairly true correlation. Mm-hmm. So you see alcohol as a numbing agent that can help people deal with emotions that they're not feeling otherwise? Or an expressive agent, and then people will express other emotions, but then they can disclaim them because they had been drinking at the time. So it's a, it, it works both ways. It allows people to shut down and be hail fellow well met, and it allows people to, to do whatever they're going to do and then say that it didn't, that it wasn't true and didn't matter. Yeah. You say there's a movement to, um, embrace disgust more and i'm so curious about the direction this conversation is heading we we didn't set out or plan to talk about this but i'm actually really curious about disgust um i remember thinking back to the beginning of the pandemic you know march 2020 and i think i had just read um the righteous mind by jonathan Haidt shortly before and i was thinking about moral emotions and disgust and i recalled reading in his book um, some of the the science on um, disgust. And there were studies, and I'm not going to remember the exact details, but these studies found that basically any small subconscious cue that reminds people of contamination or impurity tends to make people more morally rigid because of that yeah. link between the the gut feeling of disgust and and the morality of disgust and sort of the cleanliness, sanctity, moral flavor. Um, So I think there was a study in which they did the same kind of survey, except in one, people saw hand sanitizer in the background or were asked to wash their hands or something like that. And it was just fascinating how something that subtle could uh, shift people's relationship with morality. So I remember learning about that right before the pandemic and then thinking – Oh, boy. So we have that magnified to a much greater amplitude. A constant priming. Constant reminders of contamination and impurity. And what has that done uh, to our relationship with moral disgust and therefore morals in general? 
um, over the last few years. Uh, so I'm so curious yeah. to hear your how, observations on that. Yes. How is this linked to movements against um, immigration? How is this linked to m- movements to close down abortion rights? How is this linked to all of the raging uh, struggles around vaccination? How is this linked to ma- making groups of people wrong or bad? Uh, and whenever we're making any group of people wrong or bad, whenever we're we're primed by the language that our leaders are using to move into that feel-good place of, like, exclusion, like, because it, it feels so good to go, oh, no, that group is bad. I'm in a group that's good, and that group is bad. And, I mean, this is a time of, I love it that you're drawing this link between uh, the priming of contagion, the pandemic, and the current political climate, because we're in a time where there's so much divisiveness. I mean, we are we are mobilized against one another in ways that have never been true before, um, or perhaps not since the end of the Civil War. But um, but there's there's so much of exactly what you're pointing to. And I had not actually put those two together, the priming of contagion and the current political climate. It's very interesting. Mm. So here we are talking about disgust in particular, and you see ways in which our kind of collective relationship with disgust is changing for the better and for the worse, right? So here we have this kind of... Well, mostly for the worse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when it's used well, the part when we're it's, talking when about, it's yeah. yeah when it's used to awaken people's uh a revulsion or aversion to one another it's usually not being used for good yeah. <laughs> well and yet how we got here is through talking about the validity of all emotions and yes. the value of naming those emotions so while we're on that topic what do you think is the purpose of disgust and what's the benefit of recognizing it in ourselves or naming well, I love, it? I love to, to support people to claim their healthy disgust because the more that we have an internal sense rather than something that's taken in from the outside, but an internal sense of, of what, what's too much for us. I think we live in a world where our healthy disgust has gone a bit missing and needs to be resurrected because so many people are overwhelmed and overwhelm is a state where we're not able to say no. We're not able to stop the flow in. And so we need our healthy disgust to be able to create a healthy no that says, okay, that's enough. It's time for me to rest. Okay. I've had enough news. I need a little news media blackout, you know. Uh, okay, that's enough social media for me for now. I need to be able to say no. Okay, that's enough alcohol for me. I need to be able to say no. Okay, that's enough sugar, fat, salt for me. I need to be able to say no. Uh, all of our no's, when our disgust is taken from being personal and turned into a systemic force, I think we lose those healthy no's. So we're we're reawakening a capacity for healthy disgust where we get to go, 
Oh, it's time for me to have a nap. <laughs> oh, it's time for me to have a vacation. Oh, it's time for me to say no to that overtime and go home and be with my family. Oh, uh, it's, yeah. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So kind of thinking about the, the origins of disgust, there's the disgust in response to contamination, which we know is to protect ourselves. I mean, since long before we had germ theory, we felt a gut aversion to things that could actually make us ill. Um, and then there's the disgust you're talking about, I think, literally and metaphorically when it comes to what we consume, right? That, that there's a natural instinct to know what food and drink my body wants to take in and what quality I need that to be and how much is enough. And okay, I'm full now, I need to digest. And I really hear you talking about both the food, but also anything else we take in, information that we take in, responsibilities we take on, uh, that in this era, there's there's always more, so we can always take more in. And so in that process, we're out of touch with that part of us that says, okay, I'm full. Too much would make me sick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's such a wonderful healing movement, the healing movement into our healthy no, because uh, we needed it for healing from uh, uh, every kind of abuse, every kind of childhood abuse diminishes our healthy disgust, usually because we have to figure out how to absorb the, the abuse from people that we love, care about, are dependent upon. And so, so a reclamation of the healthy no, I think, is one of the, the great signs of healing from childhood abuse. And I want to talk that no more, but I also love that you use the word absorb. You talk about absorbing the abuse. Because yeah. as, as we're musing about disgust and overwhelm and fullness, I'm thinking about a pattern that I've seen in some people who struggle with binge eating. Um, oh, yes. Which is I, I often see that associated with a pattern in which there was at least an emotionally abusive or an environment in which there was something emotional going on that if you were to walk into it from a healthy state, you would have a sense, I can't stomach this. Yeah. Right? But but, but yeah. when you're in that environment and there's and there's the expectation that you just take on and take in and absorb from yes. the environment, I sometimes see binge eating or overeating developing from that as if um, inability to walk away from whatever didn't feel right in one's family and having to absorb it instead, there's like a somaticizing that happens of, oh, I'm just going to stomach this. I'm just going to take in more. I'm just going to... And then the body that car that starts carrying weight it doesn't need becomes like a physical manifestation of the sense that... Uh, I've taken in something that doesn't actually belong here. It's not, it doesn't belong to me and it doesn't feel good on me or in me, but I've swallowed it. Yeah. And I love that you use the phrase, I, we wouldn't normally be able to stomach it. 
So you're talking about helping people really get back in touch with their natural instincts, which can feel threatening because the things that we do to adapt to our family environment are part of what give us a sense of belonging and safety and security yeah. and connection to other people. So yeah, even before we have like, words, like when we were looking at some Beatrice Beebe's research. Absolutely. Sorry, I interrupted you. When we look at something like... Oh, um, well, I'm just thinking that it's scary to start to feel that part of you that wants to say no, where that healthy no is, because it can kind of threaten our sense of attachment, security with our loved ones, our tribe. So as you're doing this work of helping people get in touch with their nose, what are some of the fears or the roadblocks that come up? And then how do you respond to those? Well, the second book that I wrote, which is called the Your Resonant Self Workbook, is all about these unconscious contracts that we make with ourselves. So I wrote book one, the book that you discovered, and I was traveling around the world because it was before the pandemic, and I was teaching uh, the stuff from the workbook about self-compassion. And people would say to me, all well and good, this stuff is great, thank you, you know, most people just say be kind to yourself and walk away without saying how to do it, but even though you're teaching me how to do it, I still can't do it because it goes against my integrity to be kind to myself. And I was, and I said, huh, well, if we, if it's going against our integrity to be kind to ourselves, it must make sense, that must make sense somehow. How could that make sense, that it would go against my very integrity to be warm, kind, compassionate with myself? And when we started to look together at that, uh, it occurred to me that it seemed kind of contractual in nature, that we would have agreements with ourselves that we were violating that would give us that rise to that feeling of things being out of integrity. So we started to look at contracts that people carry. I, I will believe that I, that, uh, that I am not enough. In order to, what, what's the, well, what's the in order to? What happens if we ask the body in order to what? Why would I believe that I'm not enough? And if we think also relationally, because as we were seeing with Beatrice Beebe's work, these limitations in interpersonal connection start happening before there are even words. So it's an interesting thing to try to put words to agreements that we've made non-verbally before we even had a concept of words. But the verbal, the the non-verbal is, um, I will believe my mother's right. My mother's looking at me unkindly, and I will believe that she's looking at me unkindly for a reason. And I will believe there's something wrong with me in order to be able to stay in relationship with my mother, which is a very early nonverbal contract. But once we start to actually give those experiences words and allow people to talk about them and live into them, then people have quite extraordinary experiences of release and freedom. Because part of what's happening is that we've made the agreement with a part of our brain that's not normally worded. But when we give words to it, it can become something different. It can move into a different part of our brain, kind of be taken apart, looked at, played with, changed. We can change the contract, the unconscious contract, for example, to believe that I'm not, I will believe I'm not enough in order to make my mother right. 
no matter the no matter the cost to myself. And if we release that contract, I release that contract, I revoke that vow, and instead I give you my blessing to know, for example, to know that your mother has died. You don't have to hold that for her anymore. She's not here to worry about anymore. Or to know that you, that, that all babies do this. To know that all babies believe they're not enough. And that, to, and to realize that all babies really are enough. All babies are gifts and I am a gift as well. So there's not just the removal of this, uh, no longer helpful agreement that we have with ourselves, but there's also kind of a, a, an installation of something new and sweet that allows us to uh, bring a wider view of the world into our view of ourselves. You kind of answered a question that was starting to arise for me, which is I, I think about um, some of the people I've worked with who intellectualize a lot, and they could be in therapy for years, psychoanalyzing themselves. They could sound brilliant. They could be therapists, but there's there's a sense that um, I can think about myself and talk about myself, and I can talk about psychology all day long, but I'm still stuck in the ways that I feel stuck. And so there's that kind of mind body disconnect. And, yeah. you know, some of the people I work with who are very intellectual, who are, you know, you could say overthinkers, they go, but, but what do I do about it? Right. But what do I do? How do I fix it? You know? And, and I think, uh, you, you responded in part to that by saying that, yeah, part of the work is identifying the, the subconscious contract or the cognition or, you know, what made me decide at a time maybe I can't even remember to adopt this relational stance. So there's the process of identifying that and extending ourselves compassion for that, but there's also kind of instilling the positive cognition or the healing narrative, replacing it with something, something forgiving, relieving, empowering. Something expansive, yeah. Yeah, something warm for the self, something encouraging, perhaps even something celebratory. Yeah, and so often people come to this point of the release of the contract and they say, oh, that was a very good contract when you were little. That contract saved your life when you were little. Stopping yourself from ever hoping for warm human interaction was a very good idea when you were little. Not so good now. <laughs> Not so helpful now. I release you from that contract. I revoke that vow. Yeah. I think it's so powerful sometimes for people just to hear that they make sense, as you were saying, that that this thing that seems so dysfunctional or that they're, they're coming to you or they're coming to me because they don't like this part of themselves or this thing that they do. And just to be able to hear, yeah, that makes sense. And it really served a purpose for you well, or maybe let's see how it might still be serving a purpose. What is this doing for you before we try to make it go away? Let's understand it in context. And sometimes just hearing that can be so relieving to the inner critic or the part that's suffering from the criticism of the inner critic. Yeah, yeah. And the inner critic usually is a contracted voice, which is sort of an interesting way to think about it. We've made a deal with ourselves to be relentlessly critical, you know, in order 
to be loved, in order to uh, make sure that we behave correctly, in order to replicate the way that our parents raised us, in order to carry the voice that our mothers carried inside of herself for ourselves. I mean, oftentimes parents are so kind to their children, but not kind to themselves. And what the children end up taking away, unfortunately, is the way the mother was with herself rather than the way the mother was with her children, which can be such a confusing thing to try to heal from. I don't know why I have this critical inner voice. My parents were so kind to me. Well, how were they with themselves? Did they have a critical inner voice with themselves? Oh, yes. Well, there's that modeling. We just take it in. Yeah, the, there's wonderful research that shows that we replicate our parents' brains. <laughs> we replicate their brain patterns. We can look at the way the mom uses her brain and the way the little kid uses their brain. And it gets, it gets reproduced to father and, and the child. It's reproduced. The, the most one for one reproduction happens with mothers and daughters. <laughs> Since both you and I are daughters. <laughs> this makes me laugh because this is affecting is affecting us. Both of us are in relationship with ourselves, but also in relationship with whatever way it was that our mothers used their brains. Well, one of my hopes for my podcast project as a whole is that I want to provide inspiring role models for young women to see all the different amazing ways there can be to be a woman in this world. And of course, I'm not just interviewing women, I'm interviewing men and talking about all kinds of things, but I just love that feeling of, oh, here's this badass woman who's doing really cool stuff. And you know, just imagine for the younger listeners who are looking for role models that, that they can see so many different ways to be. That's a wonderful desire. I'm excited by your intention. Hmm. So um, I'm noticing as I'm as I'm getting into podcasting that I I tend to do things kind of out of order, <laughs> oh. and uh, you know we just we dove right into yes. some really fascinating stuff here. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking about for the listener who's never heard of nonviolent communication or never heard mm-hmm. of interpersonal neurobiology. Um, what's sort of the the nutshell version, how would you describe what... What are these things? Yeah. Um, so nonviolent communication is a way of thinking about the way we talk to each other that was developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And what he noticed was that people spend a lot of time saying, uh, t- talking around their deeper meanings when they talk to each other. So he developed a way of beginning to practice and think of, like, what's my... What's my longing when I'm talking to somebody? Like as you and I are connecting, what what are the in a way what are the needs that we share? It's exciting to discover that we share a desire for young women to have different models. And it's exciting to discover that we have a shared interest in neurobiology. So there's shared passion and shared curiosity shared sense of the effectiveness of learning about ourselves and how much that brings self-compassion. So you and I have these wonderful shared, what Marshall Rosenberg called needs, 
And the more that we connect with them, the more we actually would see ourselves syncing up if we were linked with, if we were both being monitored with, with the neuroscience devices, we would see similar brain waves. We would see each other finishing our sentences before we finished them. We, we would see moments where our heartbeats and our heart rate variability were linked. So that it's kind of an exciting thing, this nonviolent communication, it brings people together, allows them to find shared common ground, which decreases conflict and increases creative cooperation. So that's nonviolent communication, and it has four main components, which is include uh, learning to tell the difference between an observation and a judgment, and learning to tell the difference between feelings and thoughts, and learning to tell the difference between needs and strategies and learning to tell the difference between requests and demands. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm familiar with the four components of observation, feeling, need, and request, but I've never heard it laid out like that. An observation from a judgment, feeling from thought, need from strategy, and request from demand. demand that's, yeah. that's really insightful. I, I think about when I think of nonviolent communication and the value of breaking it down into those components, I think about how oftentimes our communication is muddled where we're trying to express something, but what's coming out is a combination of projection, assumptions, complaints, <laughs> <laughs> uh, accusations, right? And, and that sparks defensiveness, of course. Yeah. And uh, when I work with couples, one of the strategies I teach is learning to recognize defensiveness oh. when it creeps in earlier and earlier in the process because defense in some ways is the first offense. It's the first sign that there's been a, a disconnect, right? So going back to, to NVC, though, it's a, it's a way of retraining ourselves to think and speak differently so that instead of just saying, well, you did this because you're a that, yeah. we could say, we could identify what the observation is, what what actually happened, right? Rather than yes. ascribing our own personal value judgment to it, which is going to make right, right. someone feel defensive. Yes. And and to be able to communicate our feelings more clearly, to be able to articulate what it is that we're asking for. And I think that needs part is really key too because in NVC there's that concept of universal human needs and longings and and if you can get down to the essence of that, even if people are really disagreeing over facts and strategies, if you can get down to the essence of the need for security or the need uh, to belong or the need for independence, those are things we can all agree on. We can all relate to them. And that's a starting point. Absolutely. That's very beautifully said. So, so you said, uh, how do we get to the, you said in the very beginning talking about, you know, the assumptions or, or the, or the complaints instead of the observations. One of the ones that I love so much is when you were late, <laughs> which already starts to create that defensiveness, right? Because in our world, being late is wrong. So you're already wrong coming out of the gate. So we need to kind of learn how do our words impact each other? And what happens if we strip away the implication that the other person is wrong? So what happens if we say, when you came two hours after we agreed to meet, (laughs) then all of a sudden we're in the land of something closer to an observation, which in effect is a way of talking about what has happened without making the other person 
without absolutely stating that the other person is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is, not only is that a, a gesture of kindness and goodwill toward the person we're communicating with, uh, but but also to ourselves, right? Because if we're interpreting things in a negative light, if we're assuming negative intent, then we're hurting ourselves because we're reinforcing a story that this person doesn't care about me or I live in a world where people are inconsiderate or it's it's not a happy place to live. No. No. It's not very happy. And gives rise to resentment and a continuing flow of cortisol that diminishes our immune system response, which we do not need during a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. In earlier we were talking about disgust, right? And I, I just love yeah. that I'm having this conversation with such a gentle, nurturing person because I think that people like you and I, you know, therapists or therapist-adjacent professionals who have a, a warm, caring demeanor, people don't associate us with emotions like anger and, and disgust, right? right? And so, you know, we're going from talking about the importance of feelings like that, but also um, the value of not blaming or shaming or judging of, of being more accurate and fair and kind. So how do you bridge uh, the value of what NVC offers and, you know, the principles of kindness and giving others benefit of the doubt, not assuming, um, with the need for discernment about, well, in situations where maybe there is a reason to feel cautious that uh, maybe someone isn't playing fair or being honest about their motives? Hmm. Well, I I always like, uh, what I love the most is when healing and the arisal of the healthy no brings us towards a kind of a boredom. (laughs) That, yes, that we get bored with not being treated well. That we start to really enjoy rich, respectful interchanges, that we really enjoy mutuality, that we really enjoy a shared holding of agreements with honor and respect and dignity. And that, that when people don't do that, we start to get bored with them. This is, <laughs> for me, this is a, a wonderful healing movement. And I think it addresses exactly what you're saying. Um, because we can get on the hook, especially if we're coming from childhoods where our needs didn't matter to the people that we were with. Then pe- other people, grown-up people that we get into romantic relationships or friendships with or work relationships with, they won't treat us like we, our needs matter. And we'll be like, yeah, that feels really right. You know, like this is familiar. This is right. And we'll spend years trying to fight to get that person to change the way they treat us instead of saying, dang, this is boring. I want to be treated well. <laughs> I want to co-create our reality. Yeah. I've, I've rarely heard anyone talk of boredom in that way. And I love it because what, what I imagine you're describing oh. is a state of wholeness in which things that aren't respectful can't touch you there's there's no emotional charge there's no it doesn't get under your skin or make you want to fight back or it's just the i'm kind of over that okay (laughs) (laughs) which it's a great place to to be able to get to 
Yeah, I think it's a sweet, uh, intentional, uh, like, uh, you know, goal. Like to, to have enough self-respect that when people aren't in a space of mutuality, it's a little boring. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That seems like a drama-free way to live. Yeah. And and then we also get to notice who delights us. And that's such such fun to to notice, to feel this sense of of shared delight, of mutuality, of discovery. I get to go, "Oh, this person delights me." Mhm. That's nice, and it reminds me of earlier using the word celebration. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of those one of those words that gets lost in our avoidant attachment. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear in the transcripts. You'll see coming back to those transcripts that uh, people who are studying uh, resonant language approach to doing session work um, that they. The, the client will say, I'm so excited about this. And the therapist or the space holder will say, well, let's come back to your childhood memory. <laughs> and a little bit later, the client will say, this is so exciting. This is so fun. And the therapist will say, and let's talk about your sadness. <laughs> and then you notice, oh, I never accompanied my client into their moments of celebration. That's not work, we think. That's not, that's not where the work has to happen. We have but ideas can about be what's vulnerable. Work. Yes, and, and it is. the opposite. I mean, people are coming to a therapist for depression, for instance. Well, depression can be defined as a lack of interest, pleasure, and motivation. So what's the cure? Well, you have to find what you're interested in and and find pleasure and motivation. There there have to be positive emotions to make life worth living. And yet I sometimes have days where my clients are doing well, especially if they've been kind of on the up and up for a while, they're on a good trajectory, maybe they're nearing the end of our time together and they'll come to a session saying, oh, well, everything's going well. I don't have much to say. Or they'll, they'll say something positive, but then they'll say, well, I guess I should talk about this problem I had with my cousin, you know? And <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. No, yeah. the, you've, you, you've arrived right. at the Let's place you've pass. been working so hard to get to. Yes. Uh, having a day where you don't have anything to complain about to me Let's celebrate that. Everything's going well. That was your dream a year ago. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. A wonderful, a wonderful um, situation to be in. What a good thing to be able to to notice in ourselves and work towards that we that we would start to step into celebration with our clients. That's vulnerable, though. To to be joyful and to have. Well, to have the spotlight sometimes, I think um, birthdays, for example, can yeah. can be really fraught for people. This idea that the attention's on me and I'm here to be celebrated, and but how do I feel about who loves me and how well they love me or where I'm and at in life or whether I have anything to celebrate? Yeah, do I have to perform? Do I have to entertain in order to be worthy of holding attention? Do I have to become inauthentic if I'm going to be the center of attention? Tomlinson, the the fellow who wrote about uh, shame states and babies, one of the things that he writes is that 
that shame, that, that we are most vulnerable to shame when we are innocently happy, when we are innocently joyful. And someone doesn't catch that innocent joy. Those are the moments when we tend to fall the, the farthest and the fastest. I remember a moment when I was a child, um, I had bought the boots and I thought they were so beautiful. They were army boot. They were little child, children's army boots for rubber boots for, for puddles. And I grew up in a place where there were a lot of puddles in the spring. So your boots were really important. And these were like really tough looking and beautiful. And I was, I had them, I had the, my boot up on the lunch table bench and I was looking at my boot and I was just enjoying it. And my friend, my best friend said, those are ugly. <laughs> <laughs> what an ugly color. And all of the joy was sucked out of my boots. I can still remember the before and after. I can remember the moment of utter delight and a sense that these boots were everything in the world. And then the crash, the crash of cortisol. Um, cortisol, uh, shame apparently is the emotion which brings the largest flow of cortisol to humans of any emotion. So we, it's the most stressful thing to have our innocent joy ridiculed. Or I'm going to have to use this expression. It sucked all the joy out of my boots. Yes, it drained, sucked drained all, the, all joy. the joy out of my boots. <laughs> right through the crack. What a great expression. I didn't even notice it. I'll use it too. <laughs> I'll think of you. I'll be like, this is a good catch. <laughs> you talk about uh, cortisol, uh a stress hormone uh, being associated with shame. And uh, that brings to mind somewhat of a different topic, but the idea of good stress or, or mm. use stress, you know, the, mm -hmm. that we have cortisol for a reason, we have adrenaline for a reason. What do you think is the role of cortisol in a healthy nervous system or well, the role cortis of good stress in a happy yeah, life? Yeah. Well, the more that we have, um, the more that we have problems that we can solve, the better we do. The more we have problems that we can't solve, the worse we do. So, so it's not the problems that are the problem. It's the whether they can be solved or not that's the problem. And so good stress is when we can solve our problems, and harmful stress is when we can't solve our problems. And the and what's really interesting to me is are the markers of the immune system. What really lights our immune system up and lets it work better? And what really takes the immune system down and stops the immune system from working well? And we know so many things about cortisol and, and the unhealthy cortisol, because of course we need cortisol. It's part of our diurnal rhythm of being awake and being asleep. It's incredibly important for it to be have a correct balance and for it to muster our energy to do our problem solving and then to to let us rest after a problem is solved, to have a moment of celebration and enjoyment and satisfaction after something is solved. Hmm. When you talk about good stress being associated with problems we can solve and vice versa, I imagine some of that is the nature of the problem and some of it is the nature of our resources and skills and some of it is that uh, our mindset about our problem and our, our problem-solving skills. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, the I was working. I was doing a teaching today about stress and community, and uh, and the work of James A. Cohen, whose work I love. What his work shows us is that whoever, however much we're accompanied, decreases our stress. That the way that we perceive the world is part of what makes the world stressful, and that that our experience of being alone with unsolvable problems or difficult problems it is very different from our experience of being accompanied. He has this wonderful experiment he does where he puts people into the fMRI machine and shocks their ankle. <laughs> and they can see on the fMRI machine that it's it's a small shock, but they can see the pain register in the brain. And you'd think that would be objective. This takes us back to nonviolent communication. You would think that that would be a, a, an observation. 60 volts of, of, of pressure, this much movement in the brain. And one-to-one, no correlation. But it's not. If we bring in somebody to hold the hand of the person who's being shocked, their brain doesn't show the same amount of pain. If it's somebody who's a stranger, there's less pain. If it's somebody who's close to the person, a partner, a very good friend, then there's no pain at all that gets registered. And when people look at a mountain and say how steep it is and imagine climbing it, if they're alone, they imagine it as being much more steep. If they're accompanied, they imagine it being a gentler slope. We perceive the world based on whether or not we are accompanied, and that accompaniment changes our stress levels. And strain changes the way we perceive pain and stress in the world and changes whether or not we believe that a problem is insurmountable. Mm. That's fascinating research. It, it yeah. resonated with something for me, and I was trying to remember where I came across that. I think it might have been in a, a training I did with Sue Johnson. Um, oh, yes. The person who started emotion-focused therapy. Yes. And I, I think I recall that attachment played a role too that someone who yeah. securely attached their partner uh was better able to be soothed by the presence of their partner holding their hand yes, than someone so with an insecure attachment style does that yeah. sound right sue johnson is going to come and speak at our reson our free resonance summit this this march oh how so exciting it's very very exciting yes daniel siegel and that? sue johnson it will be online uh you'll be able to find it at sarahpayton.com and uh, We'll have them speaking and all kinds of people who teach and practice resonance. So lots of experiential. Oh, so I'm very exciting. excited about that and excited about her. She's She does marvelous research and speaks about it very compellingly. So it's, yeah. So yes, that our attachment style, again, coming back to our attachment style, which we touched into briefly when we were talking about the transcripts and how what kinds of patterns we see in our transcripts, We'll, uh, we'll also see these patterns of being able to accompany, being able to accompany fully, being able to name emotions, being able to name all the emotions. One of the things that's a sign of secure attachment is an ability to know how we feel. The more that we know how we feel, the more, the higher we score on uh, measures of attachment. So your work is about healing. It's about changing the brain as yeah. adults. Yeah. And we're also talking about things that um, establish patterns in the brain very young. I mean, you're talking about what happens in the first few months of life. Yeah. And when we talk about attachment theory, we're talking about uh, 
attachment styles that form in the first few years of life as well that then impact the quality of our adult relationships. And so I think for a lot of folks, when they're when they're learning about this stuff, it's daunting because there's a sense of, wow, so much of my brain developed in the first three to five years. Well, I'm doomed. I can't right. change that, right? And yet right. your work is about changing that. And you talk about the importance of accompaniment yeah. in that. So, so how do you instill in people the faith that even though these early developmental experiences shaped the brain and shaped their emotion regulation and their ability to connect with other people, that they can do this work and change their brains now and change their life. How do you inspire that hope and what are some of your key messages? Well, one of the ways that we can inspire that hope is to really look at where the brain remains the most neuroplastic throughout our lifespan. And we do tend to lose areas as we age. We lose, we lose volume, <laughs> especially in the part of the brain that tells us where we left our car in a big old oh, parking no. lot. <laughs> I'm doomed. Or, <laughs> or where we left our keys to try to get to our Uh-oh. car. <laughs> I asked but, for hope. I asked you to install hope, Sarah. <laughs> but the hope is that the part of the brain that stays most neuroplastic and grows the most is this very this very kind of these fibers of attachment the 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 tract of tissue between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is the area that remains most neuroplastic most amenable to change most growing most most healing of all of the brain areas so we get folks into our classes who are in their 90s and who are changed by the experience of resonance. Hmm. So the regions of the brain that are the most plastic, or for people who aren't neuroscience nerds, the most changeable, um, are those that govern attachment among yeah, other things, yeah, yeah, which that, that, that seems counterintuitive because I think about attachment as, as forming so early, but I also know that there would be no hope for so many people, including myself, if, uh, if attachment weren't plastic because That's if I was right. stuck with a child, like, I would have nothing, you know. And I know that, you know, they yeah. say that uh, for someone who with an insecure attachment style that if you, if you get to spend five years in a relationship with a secure person that you can actually develop earned or learned yes. secure attachment. Yes. Um, so, so help us understand. So those regions of the brain are associated with uh, – our ability to feel safe and connected in relationships. Yes, uh, and to more. know that we're understood and to understand ourselves and to accompany ourselves and to allow ourselves to be accompanied. And by accompaniment, I mean that when you're having a hard time, there's a part of you that comes and and does whatever, you know, whatever is most comforting. If you like to be held, then that com- part comes and holds you and says, hey, Sarah, no, yeah, of course this is hard. Hey. Of course you're sad. Do you need some acknowledgement of anger? And that naming, and that that's a that's a kind of a self accompaniment that allows the body to relax fully. And maybe maybe it's like more like elbow bumps, you know. Maybe you're not somebody who likes to be held tightly or or even loosely. Maybe you just like to know somebody's there, and then you'd come and give yourself a little elbow bump and say, "Of course, of course you're scared." And, and then you have this sense of making sense 
that is the essence of secure attachment. When we have the experience of making sense, it is the essence of secure attachment. Mm, I love that. I love this term self-accompaniment because it's it's clear. I I think about self-reparenting and self-befriending and self-compassion and self-accompaniment kind of encapsulates all of that. You're being your own companion, whether the companion you need is more of a nurturing or protective parental figure or the companion you need is a friend to sit by your side. You you can fulfill any of those for yourself. Yes. I think some people feel like I can't do that for myself if someone else won't do it for me. Right. And I like to think, well, both and, right? Of course right. you don't want to be alone and just try to be self-sufficient uh, exclusively. Right. But it can only help you to feel better and only help you to be a, you know, bring your best self to any future relationship if you can also befriend yourself and yes. fill some of that void for yourself. That's often a contract. I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will not be kind to myself in order to leave space for somebody to come and be kind to me. Which when we start to look at it, we go, oh, that's like a logical glitch there. (laughs) Uh Uh Yeah, and then we can say, do you really want that contract, Sarah? Sarah can say, no, that's a bad contract. I will be kind to myself, and I want somebody to come and be with me. Mm. I feel like we could do a whole episode on any of several topics that have come up, and one of them that you've mentioned a few times now is contracts. And I know that we're almost out of time, but I'd love if you could just kind of explain what is a contract and how do you help people identify? Because what you're describing is so unconscious. Yes, I know. And yet you put these clear words to it. And I'm imagining if I were your client and you gave those words and that was my contract, I'd I'd feel called out and like, oh, that is what I'm doing. So how do you help people identify what those contracts are? Usually people experience relief. Not always, but mostly. And mostly, you, you know, you ask consent. You say, would it be okay if I guessed a contract for you? And so that that's this book, the Your Resonant Self workbook. The book that you found is Your Resonant Self. And and then I wrote the Your Resonant Self workbook because, as I said, I was traveling around the world and people were like, can't do it. It's beautiful work and I can't do it. And I was like, okay, we need to talk about contracts. We need to talk about the way that the amygdala internalizes behavioral patterns and makes them solid, puts them into little amygdala concrete and says, I will always, I will never, I will never be kind to myself. That's an, whenever we hear ourselves saying never or always, we know we're in the territory of the amygdala. Interesting. We are not always and never uh, beings. (laughs) When I think of the amygdala, and I, I know a lot less neuroscience than you do, but I just think of fear, among other things. And, oh, that's amazing. And those are fear-based contracts, right? Yeah. I will always or never because otherwise I'll yes, my existence yes. will be threatened. Exactly. Exactly. I'll be humiliated. I'll be scorned. I'll be shamed. We have these experiences. Part of the contract release process is going, would Sarah, would you like a little acknowledgement that indeed you were shamed and humiliated? When you were little, when you would cry and people would see you cry. You know, I mean, I think there's probably a contract not to love anything the way I loved my boots. 
I will not love. <laughs> yeah, I, I will not love anything. I will not let anyone know I love things when I love them in order to keep from having my love destroyed. Yes, in order to keep from disappointment and heartbreak, no matter the cost to myself. And then we can actually, once we name those, we can begin to release them. Yeah. And it's so powerful when you stumble across the right words. I remember yeah. in reading your book, um, it was one of many sections where you you kind of model what this inner dialogue could look like when you're making empathic guesses about oh. yourself in that self-accompaniment process. And you know, I've, I've read so many of them, but there's this one, um, I think it was something like, are you feeling like the whole world is on fire and you're the only one with a Tyvek suit? And I read that. I was like, I am. How do you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's come up several times. It's, it's such a vivid description. And, and when we name those things, then it's, it's illuminating. It's, it can start to feel relieving, but it's, it's not the same as telling myself the world isn't on fire. Stop acting like the world's on fire. It's not that. It's, are you subjectively having the experience? Maybe the world seems like it's on fire. It's, yeah. it's a very compassionate way to come yeah. at my firefighter part and empathize yeah. with why I get so impulsive and feel like I have to save everyone, right? Because that is yeah. my experience yeah. until I name it. And then I can experience it just as a subjective part of me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's such a beautiful way of expressing what the contract work does. I often have this sense that contract, the contract work takes us to the same place that years of meditation take us, to a, to a sense of the self as very connected to something greater and not defined. That, uh, that we start to notice as we do the contract work, the extent to which we are, we, our ideas about ourself were kind of creatures of trauma. Form that we were, our ideas about ourselves have been formed by trauma, and that as we, as we release our alwayses and our nevers, we, <laughs> we move into a, a sense of being very connected, and very fluid, and less, yeah, less defined. I think you you're think? modeling that it's possible to have an understanding of trauma in the way that you do and and also not be jaded or naive or cynical about that. Yeah. Yeah, we get to we get to do when when we know there's trauma it's it's just time for for self-accompaniment cuz we haven't said this yet but we'll say it now the amygdala has no sense of time. So all those intrusive memories are just memories that are waiting for accompaniment. Wow. Every I, every memory we have that's alive and feels painful is just a sign that there was nobody with us and we get to go back and collect that little self and be with them. Right. I mean, that that's part of what makes the difference between whether something is experienced as an ongoing trauma state is, is whether we had the support, the companionship that we needed at the yeah, time. Yeah, and or whether we go back and do it now. So your workbook guides people in learning how to soothe themselves, how to empathize with themselves, put words to their experience. Sounds like a, a 
great resource. So uh, where can people find you and your work? On any online bookseller. So whatever your favorite is, or you can have your your favorite book and brick and mortar store order the books for you. Um, you can also find them on my website at uh, sarahpayton.com and at yourresonantself.com. And there are lots of, there'll be all the information about the March Free Resonance Summit that's coming up. And there'll be information about um, about uh, classes and recordings and there are free guided meditations for download there as well. Okay, so you have resources of all kinds that people can check out. And I love that you have free guided meditations. I'm going to have to recommend that to people who are looking for guided meditations. Yeah, you can find them on Insight Timer too, if you are an Insight Timer user. Oh yeah, I've heard of that app. So some of your meditations are on that app. Yes, yes. And if you speak Turkish and German, (laughs) there are meditations for for download. (laughs) You've been people, translated into multiple yeah, languages. People, people all over the world find it, and then they go, I'm going to make these medit- I'm going to read these meditations aloud in Turkish. I'm like, okay, we'll put them on the website. Cool. Yeah. What, a, what an honor. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, I know I need to let you go, so I'm just going to say thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. I'm very grateful to be here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.